Kapag hindi kayo sumuko, lalo kayong mapapasubo Baka tuluyan na kayong di matuntun Hi, this is Mark, your narrator here at Sagittarian Project A history podcast featuring readings about the dark years of martial law in the Philippines How are you all doing? I hope you're all holding up well Yes, there are a lot of things happening these days as we gear up for um, election season. You know, we know it's going to get crazier and crazier from here. Uh, as for us here, we'll find some way to cope to cope with this with some history readings that can hopefully help us find more clarity and enlightened understanding. Today, We're backtracking a little bit and we're going to learn about the situation in the Philippines before former president and dictator Ferdinand Marcos imposed martial law in the Philippines in September 1972. A lot of current propaganda that's spreading today say that martial law was warranted, meaning that it was much needed during the time that it was declared. Is this true? We are reading an excerpt of Chapter 3, Twilight of Democracy, from our main source material for this podcast, The Conjugal Dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos by Primitivo Mijares. The gusts blowing across the islands of the Philippine archipelago in the late 60s and early 70s were not of such velocity as to constitute a justification for the imposition of martial law. However, President Marcos discerned the national fever burning over certain aspects of national humiliation, cynicism, and despair of a weary people. Marcos observed and studied the emergence of an organized and militant movement for change. He took note of the fact that the movement brought about a loose coalition among intellectuals professionals, small businessmen, students, peasants, laborers, and employees, and even elements heretofore inactive in the political field, that is, the seminarians, priests, nuns, and Catholic school students. Together, they started questioning the injustices of the social and political system, with increasing support from the elite of two major political parties and the influential media, the movement generated nationwide support through massive demonstrations and teach-ins. Nevertheless, it was clear that the movement never sought the destruction of democracy in the country. They wished to preserve it as they sought to police and protect their ranks from numerous infiltrators who were mostly military intelligence men in Mufti. A significant victory of the coalesced groups came during the elections for delegates to the 1971 Constitutional Convention. About one-third of the delegate seats were won by progressives and independents who later formed a potent bloc to push through sweeping and fundamental structural changes in the government and society. The organized reform movement did not rest on its laurels that is, victory in the election of CONCON delegates. It attended to the much-needed politicization of the people in democracy. Of this political transformation taking place in the Philippines, Father Bruno Hicks, 
an American Franciscan missionary deported later by the Marshall regime, who now lives in Stockton, California, wrote, I saw more and more Filipinos getting into the political arena. I saw simple and conscientious peasants forming their own political groups, expressing themselves, beginning to vote independently of their landlords and employers. Father Hicks then, then asks, could this have been the reason why martial law was declared? Because democracy was just beginning to work and the grievances of the masses were finally getting organized, getting aired, bringing pressure to bear on the political institutions? As Marcos took note of the pressure brought about by the reform movement, he even sought to ride the crest of the new wave. Marcos had become an apostle of change himself, but of a different hue and color. I recall a number of occasions when the First Lady Imelda would despairingly talk of how the new coalition of progressive and independent elements seemed to present a formidable threat to the plans of the First Family to stay in power. Marcos was unperturbed. He had other things in mind. Marcos started tossing his own theories and ideas on the burgeoning movement for change during an informal session with some of his cabinet members following the accreditation in Malacanang of a newly arrived ambassador of a foreign country. Usually, members of the cabinet are invited to such accreditation ceremonials, which take place at about 10 a.m. in the Malacanang reception hall. After the accreditation ceremony, the president sits down informally with members of his official family. On one such occasion, a member of the cabinet opened up with an observation that the quote, violent demonstrations were being supported, nay, openly encouraged by the media. It almost seemed as if this was from a cue from Marcus himself. He added that the media even used freedom of the press as license to abuse the president and his wife. In any meeting of the president with his subordinates, only Marcos may speak lengthily on anything. The others may interrupt with only one or two short sentences, unless he has an anecdote to relate that is calculated to make the president laugh. When the president said, uh, which was his signal for anybody talking at the time to shut up and give way to him, all eyes turned to the chief executive. He stated that it's true that the confrontation started by the reformist groups with the government was becoming dangerous posing a threat not only to the party in power, but to the entire establishment. There is even a real possibility, Marcos declared, that a new political party made up of young, ambitious men and women who have succeeded in identifying themselves with the interests of the masses in opposing foreign capital and the elitists may replace the nationalista and liberal parties. A cabinet member who has never been known for being tactful boldly asserted that the demands of the demonstrating groups focused on exploitation of the Philippines by American business interests as well as on the need to restrict the United States on the use of its military bases in the country. The cabinet member had spoken more than two lines. He was not supposed to do that. The president cut him off. Then, as if speaking with a prepared script, Marcos then revealed that he had been assessing the possible adverse results that the, quote, parliament of the streets might bring about in the Philippines' relations with the United States. 
the president pointed out that there was a real possibility that the U.S. would get out of the Vietnam War, thereby requiring greater protection for the U.S. naval and air bases in the Philippines as insurance against probable expansion of Soviet power in Asia. Marcos added that the approaching end of parity demanded a trade agreement equally favorable to U.S. business interests which had just suffered setbacks in the newly handed down decisions of the Supreme Court. Japan, too, which was being urged by the United States to expand in Asia so that she can share in the protection of the area from Soviet expansionism, needed favorable business terms in the Philippines. Marcos noted that the Senate had not seen it fit to ratify the pending Philippines-Japan Treaty of Amity, Commerce, and Navigation. Then the tactless cabinet member became pertinent for Marcus's purposes. It was as if he himself was following a script prepared by whoever drafted the president's own script for the day. He went on to say, What we need, Mr. President, is martial law, so that you can continue your good work for this nation. We need martial law to protect the two-party system, and we need it to protect the republic from the rebels. We also need it so that you can protect the U.S. bases, secure U.S. investments, and allow foreign investors to help in the development of this country. Sometimes known as the, quote, Secretary for Air Pollution, because he would butt in on any subject under discussion in any cabinet meeting, this particular cabinet man was all of a sudden the darling of Mr. Marcos. He had performed well, perhaps according to the script. However, Marcus played it cool and coy. The president said he would keep the suggestions of the cabinet members under advisement and that he would act in the best interest of the republic. However, he has driven home his point. He had delivered his message to the cabinet and the other people outside Malacanang whom they would be calling the moment they stepped out of the palace gates. Marcos added as a parting shot that the so-called reform movement was not strong enough. The demonstrators were not aggressive enough. He had plans all by himself to exacerbate the revolutionary situation. When Marcos had done so, he made his decision known also to Ambassador Byrod. The myth is now closing down on Filipinos at home and abroad that the declaration of martial law in the Philippines was caused in part by the failure of American-style democracy to cope with the growing pains of development in a country dominated by vested interests and oligarchs. Marcos just did not prove equal to the increasing sophistication of the Filipino electorate who, on realizing their frustrations and the frustrating acts of Marcos, had to take to the streets and organize the so-called Parliament of the Streets, which the incumbent president immediately branded as rebellion. Martial law, therefore, was more than just a vehicle for a power grab to handle the open bargaining process so necessary to Philippine political and economic development. It was also a way to silence any opposition, so that history books would glorify Marcos and remember him as a revolutionary rather than a failure. In his first book, Today's Revolution, Democracy, Marcos recalled an accusation that Filipinos could not make an honest revolution in 1896. Now, he wants his imposition of martial law to be known as democratic revolution. 
Is this what he would call honest? When Marcos first telegraphed his message as early as 1971 that there was a pressing need for a, quote, democratic revolution from the top, his former executive secretary, Rafael M. Salas, found an occasion to ridicule the president's posture as a revolutionary by stating in an interview with Quijano de Manila, pen name of former Free Press staff writer Nick Joaquin. In the interview, Salas says, how can Marcos call it a democratic revolution? Does he mean that it was not a working democracy before? Revolution means change. Usually, it comes from below. If it's going to be from above, the word is reform. The terminology is unfortunate. Again, I go back to my statement that morality is necessary to make any form of reform credible to the people. There was nothing in the Philippine situation that would have generated panic or hysteria. Just a year before the imposition of martial law, the prestigious RAND Corporation surveyed the Philippine situation on commission from the U.S. Agency for International Development. The RAND report underscored, among others, the fact that, number one, the political system appears to be stable and generally responsive to the desire of most people. Number two, the economy appears to be performing better than commonly thought and is spread broadly across the country. Number three, crime is not a national problem. Violence and fear of violence are concentrated in a few areas. Number four, the HMB or Hukbong Mapagpalaya ng Bayan are not a serious threat to the government. The only emergency condition that existed on or around mid-1972 revolved around the personal and political fortunes of President Marcos and his ambitious and insatiable wife, Imelda. It was a fact at the time that the second and last legally elective term of Marcos was barely one year away from a humiliating end. Influential leaders of the two major political parties, including ranking leaders of the president's own Nationalista Party, were openly talking about how Marcos and his wife would have to be made to answer to the people and the courts of law and equity. That should shed some light on the unabashed abuse of power and the rampant graft and corruption that pervaded the Marcos I and II administrations. That concludes our reading for today. We will continue reading from the same excerpt of Chapter 3, Twilight of Democracy, in our next episode on Thursday. Thank you to Ateneo Press and the Mihares family for granting us permission to use the book, The Conjugal Dictatorship, for the readings in this podcast. Thanks also to Gary Granada for the music on the show. I also wanted to tell you about this class I attended last weekend. It is called Human Rights Crash Course, How to Discuss Human Rights in Class and How to Explain Human Rights to Kids. I think it's a very important undertaking done by the people behind a volunteer uh, nonprofit group called Shareware School. Basically, it's human rights unpacked for you I encourage anyone interested to learn about human rights at a very basic, easy-to-digest level to, to check out this crash course from Shareware School. The content is fresh, clear, concise, very relatable because it is Philippine-centric, and, and at times tongue-in-cheek. 
which makes the rather serious subject interesting and fun. The webinar is very organized, punctual, and interactive. There are still a couple more sessions that's happening this week. I will leave the link in the notes in the show notes below so that you can check it out and register. Thank you all again for listening to the Sagittarian Project. If you enjoy our episodes, please consider subscribing to this podcast and leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts to help us get more people to listen to the show. You can also follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. If you have any feedback or suggestions for the show, please let us know by sending us a message on our social media accounts, Sagittarian Project on both Facebook and Instagram. Or you can email us at sagittarianproject at gmail.com. That's it for now and see you in our next episode. Kapag hindi kayo sumuko, lalo kayong mapapasubo, baka tuluyan na kayong di matuntun. Kahit saan kayo magtago, kung may ulo ay may pako, baka tuluyan na kayong maibaon.